Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between music and commerce by talking to musicians, mostly guitarists, about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Welcome to episode one of the More Art Than Science podcast, where I interview Derek Gripper. I was lucky enough to see Derek play once before this interview at a group muse held in a friend's living room. There were about 30 people present. Derek was unassuming, yet completely in control and in touch with the crowd in the room. He played a nylon guitar, but the music he played was not classical in the traditional sense, and it was actually unlike anything I'd ever heard. Derek is perhaps best known for the completion of a 10-year project in 2012 to understand and translate the music of the West African Kora virtuoso Tumani Diabate to solo guitar. That work resulted in two critically acclaimed albums, One Night on Earth and Libraries on Fire, with the latter receiving a Songlines Award for the Best Album Africa and Middle East in 2017. A couple of days after the interview, Derek played at Adam Levin's University of Rhode Island Guitar Festival to a much larger crowd. Derek was composed and relaxed uh, at that gig as well. And in, throughout the interview, I found him to be a relaxed, funny, and unassuming guy, even more so after I offered to give him a beer and make him some dumplings. On to the interview. Welcome, Derek Gripper, to Sunnyvale in Massachusetts. Thanks for coming by. So uh, you're in town for, among other things, the University of Rhode Island Guitar Fest. Yes. Yep. And uh, appreciate you stopping by for a podcast that's talking about the business and economics of being an artist and uh, probably more specifically being a guitarist or a musician. And uh, I'd love to get to know a little bit about um, what's start maybe from growing up. When did you start playing guitar? I actually started guitar quite late. I started on more traditional instruments, <laughs> like the violin and, and piano. So I started the violin when I was seven, and uh, I only started to play fretted instruments when I was about 14, and I wanted to play in bands. So uh, I, somebody gave me a bass guitar, and I became kind of the bass guitar around you know, that age group in Cape Town. I, I played in a lot of different bands and, uh, you know, first at school and then, you know, got sort of headhunted by another band and I played in a big band as well and, you Great. Know, that type of thing. Yeah, so Cape Town, South Africa is like any other city in the U.S. and that if you want a job in a band, you play bass. And that's, <laughs> Can you imagine? That is, right? <laughs> you play bass, you got a gig. I mean, got a gig. Yeah. I know, there weren't many bass players at that time, I mean, of my age. And that could like playing time and stuff, I suppose. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> playing in time is a prerequisite, yes. And then um, I and then I um I, I graduated from that because I had a piano teacher who had studied at the Royal College in London with Carlos Bonell as a guitarist. Oh. Um, and he shamed poor guy was given the job of teaching me piano, um, which he you know he wasn't by any means a pianist, but we got to know each other, and he was also probably a theory teacher for me and. And so we we became pretty close, and at first I you know made fun of him for playing the instrument that, that you had like markers where you knew where to put your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and then slowly I got really interested in it, and unfortunately he was full; he didn't have uh, you know space to teach me, but he sure. gave me music. So I would sit outside his classroom with 
a guitar. I managed to borrow a guitar. First, I sat and taught myself all the chords. One weekend, I got one of those chord charts, and I learned how to switch between different chords. If I look back, it's pretty academic so, way to do it. Like, I wasn't trying to learn a song. I was just going, okay, what happens between C major and G major? And then I would switch between those oh, chords wow. for half an hour. Okay. A and, cerebral uh, approach. Yeah, yeah, like I never actually, I mean, I probably played guitar for years without being able to play a, a song. You know? That's interesting. I mean, no, that's so, not true. Yeah. You're joking. Okay. That's dry dry humor. Okay. I'm going to pick up on this eventually. Okay. So, but so this, uh, what was his name? The teacher from Royal College? Teacher was Michael Hool. Michael Hool. He was a great player and it was really, that was a real luck because he was the only guy, um, you know, in Cape Town who was, you know, really a classical guitarist. Ah, okay. But you said your, was it your parents who had wanted him to teach you piano? What was the No, I was at school and I was doing music as a subject. Ah. I was actually doing two of my subjects, music. So okay. you had six, eight subjects, and then you narrowed it down to six. And I managed to make two of those music. So it made high school much more enjoyable. <laughs> so I was doing violin and piano, and he was my piano oh, okay. teacher. I see. And then slowly I, you know, so I started sitting outside his room, and, and, and I would sit at the piano and find the notes on the score, because he gave me these scores, and then I'd find them on the guitar. Okay. And I would teach myself to play these pieces and sit outside his room, and then he'd come and say, oh, yes, that's right, and change that. And so I had these kind of passing by lessons, and then eventually started to studying with him. Okay, and, and I'm assuming because you weren't going directly to guitar, guitar wasn't offered as a discipline in school. It was offered, but he was just full. Yeah. Oh, so he okay. was one so of the there's school the full teachers. Part. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so they, they were progressive enough, if we sell, if we can call it that, to yeah. offer guitar. It's not like a, yeah, a conservative I was, I mean, conservatory where yeah, guitar is not exactly. considered a real instrument. Yeah, but. yeah. No, absolutely. I was, I was very lucky again because I was at, well, then, this is the uh, early 90s, I was so uh, high school, which is the last five years before you go to university or college. Um, uh, I was the first year of open schools, 1991, in South Africa. So it was oh. the first mixed race uh, okay. schools uh, when I went to high school. Okay. And we had, they kind of found this compromise called the Model C school, which was a, partly a government school, but it was allowed to have its own private funds, yep. which meant that it could hire its own teachers on top of whatever the government uh, um, budget was, uh, which was kind of a way for them to keep the old, you know, wealthy white schools going unchanged. Really, I see. Okay. You know? and, but it's, it's, it's very much changed now. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, the schools are, are much more mixed now. I mean, ours was a very slow beginning. But... So the result was there were 15 full-time music teachers at that school, mm. and they had an incredible music department. I mean, we had, we had violinists with the school orchestra. I was a violinist in the orchestra, and we had you know, a final year student playing the Bruch Violin Concerto, the whole thing, with, with us in the orchestra. And we had an incredible cellist uh, and just amazing, uh, you know, amazing musicians. Uh, there were two exceptional violinists who, yeah. you know, so, and so this is a public institution with 15 full-time music teachers? Know, can you believe yeah. it? Yeah, in South yeah. Africa. <laughs> and and is, does that school still exist at, yeah. as such? Yeah, like 15 full-times? I don't know how many. Yeah, yeah they've still got a great music department. It still carries on. If, if there's such thing as an average or a median high school, like... No, the, <laughs> there isn't. I mean, well, it's, it's hugely disparate. I mean, you know, in South Africa, that's, that's the, the divide you have. You have a school like that, which is supposedly a government school, which has 15 music teachers and, you know, 
a few hours away, you'll have a school where people are still sitting on the floor and don't even have textbooks. Uh-huh. So okay. this is the great disparity. Uh, amongst the, I'm just trying to think of another way to break it down. So amongst the haves, if you will, or the, mm-hmm. the wealthier schools, uh, is it still unusual to have 14 or 15 full-time music teachers? Or do, do, do they all have at least one music teacher? Or uh, yeah, they, A lot of schools that I know of have music teachers and music departments, and you can do music as a subject. Okay. Yes, so that as part of the national curriculum. Oh, so okay. they are. So the main kind of you know older established schools that are still running, but are now obviously open schools. Uh, uh, they definitely a lot of them have music departments, and definitely a lot of them have extramural music programs. Mm-hmm. So you know part time teachers coming in on a kind of uh, student by student basis, but organized by the school. And different schools do it in different ways. But there's a lot of a lot of music teaching happening in the in the main schools of Cape Town. Um, beyond that, you know, it would be a dream. I'm sure there's no there's no possibility. Okay, so it's just a cosmopolitan thing, totally. more or less. Okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> how about in, in terms of your family background? Were your parents happy to have you take two out of six classes in music? Were, were you a, <laughs> was that were you a rebel for doing that? Um, I grew up actually mostly living at that time with my grandparents, and they had no musical. Um, you know, background at all. Um, my grandfather didn't understand at all. You know, he was a businessman, and so you know, he was concerned that I wasn't doing accounting because I wouldn't be able to do my books. Which, you know, in retrospect, he was entirely right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he he was immensely supportive because I, you know, I had a single mother who who wouldn't have been able to afford to support a musician because a musician is quite a thing to support you know, the instruments and that. And the one thing about my grandfather is that. He, he really supported that side of things. So when I started piano, he, he got hold of a piano. Right. And, you know, when and I was playing violin and needed a new violin, I, I switched over to viola at some point, you know. So he helped fund that side of the of, of the project, which would have been very tricky without yeah. him. You know, yeah. I remember, you know, he helped me get my first bass amp. I'd saved up money. And then he said to me, you know, what can you, what can you get for that? And I said, I can get this. And he said, well, how long is that, is that going to, be good enough for playing in the clubs and that that you're playing in. And I mm-hmm. said, no, it's not, but it's all I can afford. So then, you know, then he'd look at that and go, well, this is pointless. And, you know, so mm-hmm. he, he was very, he was very good like that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't necessarily approve that it, you know. He didn't he, understand. Yeah. But, but he was still willing to support what he saw as passion. <laughs> well, you know, he was willing to support what he could understand of it, which was the technical side. Okay. You know, like, yeah. oh, you can guitar, so you need a guitar. You know, and w- what's the market of guitar? And then you could understand that. And it took him many years until... I would say very recently to to get like okay he's making he's you know to stop saying when are you going to get a job as a university <laughs> professor you know okay so he recognizes still, he still says this it. is yeah. what he now <laughs> yeah okay. now he gets it like okay he seems to be making a living right okay let's leave him alone <laughs> <laughs> excellent all right so so that's high school so at, at at the end of high school in South Africa do, does one need to make a decision to either go to you know a full time conservatory or can you still do what we would call, you know, sort of a broad liberal arts or bachelor of arts degree? Or you, can, you can do a broad, you can do a broad, we call it bachelor of arts as well. Yeah. Um, you can do that. You know, I had, so Mike, who uh, was very, um, ex- he was a very inspiring guy. So he was just like, you're incredible, you're going to go to university. So I kind of followed that energy. Nice. And, and, and did kind of look back at, you know, my early 20s and go like, hey, what happened? You know, did I actually choose to do this? Why am I even, you know, I, I didn't choose. Who so was, this? was it musical university or was it? Yeah. So okay. I went to the University of Cape Town um, okay. and they have a they have a music college there where you can do, a, 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 
you know, a bachelor of uh, Bima's bachelor of music in you can do it in classical, jazz, African music, or opera, or the four main okay. streams. And you so went for? I went into classical, um, and I, I studied classical guitar there. And you dabbled in a little bit of African as well, or no? Um, I dabbled in other things. I so I'd been playing in, in bands, and then I, I left bands mostly because playing bass and classical guitar at the same time became conflicting. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I was also getting a bit bored of it. And I started. Uh, I, I would say the first uh, sort of music business thing, which was really good for me, was well playing in those bands. You know, so we were going from the age of fifteen, sixteen, we were playing in clubs, even though we were underage. Yeah. So you know, I got used to you know making posters and sticking them up around town and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I started an ensemble, uh, four piece thing, which was it was kind of around the time of the Page and Plant unplugged, and I started listening to Indian classical music and nice. Rai, and yeah. you know, Khaled, that so, I, and I got together with a really interesting musician who was also a classical guitarist, uh, but had an amazing you know collection of music and knowledge of music. He was a composition student, and we created this ensemble, which was you know a whole mix of things. It was violin, cello, tabla, guitars, and this kind of rock vocalist. And we rewrote music and we performed together for a year, and we chose to put on concerts instead of, you know, playing all the clubs because we were kind of acoustic. So that was really interesting because then we started programming, you know, getting used to, you know, finding venues, hiring the venue, doing our own publicity because, you know, there's no, there was no infrastructure for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, started getting a handle on what it was to put together a mailing list, what it was to, you know, walk around for five hours with, uh, you know, poster paint glue and, and a bunch of posters yeah. and sticking them up on, yeah. um, you know. This is for the ensemble now. That's for the ensemble, yeah, okay. especially. And that's, yeah, you know, making posters. I mean, we were cutting and pasting and photocopying yeah, as we went sure. using computers. Really so, I mean, we don't see, I mean, I definitely did the poster thing when I was in the rock band years, high school and college, um, but it's not something that I see other people doing for their ensembles around town. I mean, I don't see, like, you know, on a street post, you know. Yeah, no, we post so, it. Yeah, but is that still, I mean, is that something that still happens today? In other words, I mean, I just, I, I don't know um, how many of like a, if that's where the target market is, if you will. Oh, so in other you words, mean like visual people, posters and things? I yeah. think posters, I still have their, look, I don't know anywhere else but Cape Town in that respect. I think they still have their place. Uh, okay. I, 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 I do, I think. So you're, are you still today advertised with posters? I, or I don't somebody? advertise anything anymore. I mean, I didn't do anything. I, I just... I just I just respond. I, you know, we'll get there. I suppose at the end of the story, <laughs> where I okay. got where I got right, this right. project. Okay, so at this point, you're you're doing the poster school, <laughs> um, and and the the school itself. What what is what's the um, cost to you in Cape Town to go to a four year university for music? Yeah, at that time right. it wasn't hugely expensive. I got a student loan, and, and my grandfather helped me out, and and I had a job um, busking. At the kind of big, uh, what's called the waterfront, the shopping, okay. the shopping complex, which is where the tourists. Busking is when you play and people throw money at yeah. you. But I had a paid job busking, which nice. is great because I so I had an hourly rate plus I was allowed to have money thrown at me, and that was at the aquarium. Oh, so I would I would play there, and and so I've always been pretty lucky in that guitar has always allowed me to be. Paradoxically, it's always allowed me me to be outside of economy in a way because you know it, it allowed me to earn money in a short time 
that it would have taken me a long time to learn, you know, to, to learn. I mean, not yeah. counting, of course, the, the, all the time you spent not right. learning playing guitar, which, yes. you know, which is, you know, you're yeah. always on a losing end. Yeah. But, but it was great. It really, it really, like, I've never had a real job in my life, you know, okay. which is, uh, I, I did actually, I, 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 my second year of university, I, I worked at a stew shop. Um, you know, serving stews, but that's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> a stew shop, okay. All right. So, so what? But what for for the American listeners? What, what, you know, you got a loan to go to school. You didn't have to go into that much debt. But you know, here today, anyway. Well, let's say in '93, it would have cost to go to a private university like Oberlin that has a music school would have cost you around eighteen to twenty thousand dollars. Yes. No, year. my 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 yearly rate. My thing was was under two thousand dollars. I think. Okay, so for the, magnitude for cheaper, order of magnitude yeah. cheaper. Okay, so two, two, 2K a year, you get some loans, you graduate with five or 6K of debt. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, I had I had like 2,000 debt when I 2,000 in debt, okay, because you're, you're making money busking and playing. And yeah, you know, my, I, yeah, my grandfather may have paid a year, and then I took a, you know, it, it kind of went like that. But it, it, yeah, that was, you know, that's a huge barrier for people in South Africa now, and this is something that's really, oh, okay. people are struggling to address is people with, without, um, you know, an income, and, you know, that how, how can they get access to tertiary education? And this is one of the big dividing factors in our society still yeah is that people like me still have access to tertiary education um and whereas a lot of people don't so and what is the cost today in, in south africa to go to tertiary school yeah it's probably in the range of uh, i like i could be completely wrong because i haven't looked but it, I, I think it's probably about four thousand a, okay, a so year or something about, about doubled since then roughly from yeah, but it could, it could be, i could be completely wrong so don't quote me on this okay um but it's well, yeah it's not it's not in that we are recording, by the way, so it's kind of by no, no, no. being quoted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean don't quote me on this as in anybody listening. Must okay. quote me. <laughs> so that, that, that makes sense. So, all right. And then after school, you have a, relative to the U.S. anyway, a small amount of debt. You've been able to make some money during school playing guitar, which is great. Um, do you go for a graduate degree afterwards? Yeah, I went for a graduate. I was actually in university for nine years in various ways. Okay. Um, I got a better job later on. Um, they, they opened up a hotel at the same waterfront, and I got a job accompanying a Russian violinist nice. who then lost his job, and then they gave me the job. So I, I played you know, nine hours a week, 333 at high tea, and, uh-huh. um, and got, a, got a, pretty, you know, a pretty nice amount of, of money that could keep me, keep me going quite happily for the last little bit of my of my studies and eventually they, they kicked me out because I stopped wearing the tuxedo because I because they you didn't like the monkey suit well they started paying less and I thought okay you guys aren't paying enough for a tux anymore <laughs> they got upset about that okay but you know that had, that had uh, run its run its course okay and then I yeah then I entered into the, the postgraduate um, thing which was which was really nice so, uh, because I started really exploring you know whatever I wanted to do so I did a completely independent postgraduate that was there was no coursework or anything um, I was also already teaching a little bit um, the, the undergraduates guitar because oh, okay. there'd been a whole you know big breakdown in the guitar department so I had already been bringing one student through and then started teaching a, a few more uh, and I got a grant I went to India studied carnatic uh, percussion theory of carnatic percussion and you know, I lived very, uh, very kind of off the grid. I, I went mm. and lived on a farm, uh, which you know allowed me to, you know, live off nothing and just play wow. and, and explore and read and you know, check things out. 
So, so that was mostly my, my priority. I didn't really enter into any kind of uh, formal relationship with the financial system, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> I, I, I lived as a kind of, you know, yeah. itinerant yeah. paper hour, good by student, but it was a terrible hour. rate. It still is a terrible rate. Okay. I mean, I think it's a, it, was, it was like six, seven dollars an hour. U.S. dollars an yeah. hour. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and later on, uh, once I graduated with my master's degree, uh, I became the head of guitar there for a year. This is, this is still at uh, Cape Town, University at of Cape University Town? University of Cape Town, yeah. I became the head of guitar, so I, I taught, uh, you know, pedagogy and history of guitar and repertoire, and then I taught individual guitar lessons, and I rebuilt the syllabus. I, I designed a new syllabus, and I was still on an hourly basis, <laughs> pretty much the same rate. So <laughs> it was, never a, it was yeah. never a career choice so much as just a, you know, a thing that I felt passionate about because oh, I had a lot of problems with how it was run while yeah, I was there yeah. and I really I wanted to make a guitar department there that stood up to the other to the other instruments that's awesome yeah. so it's so a work of passion a, wor a work of love and were you able to hand it off to somebody who's now carrying on a better tradition or yeah I, I handed it over to another guitarist after that year because I found the whole process quite depressing and uh, it you know it didn't a lot of people were being let in at the time who really couldn't play. So I came as a young, idealistic, you know, academically inclined musician who was imagining that my class of 10 guitarists would each study one of the different methods and people would play for them. And I realized that people couldn't even read music. You know? mm. So I had to, you know, if I had the job now, I would do it very differently because I've been exploring education in a very different way. Mm. At that time, you know, I, I was not well suited to it, but, you know, I was well suited to the university environment, but that wasn't what was required there. So yeah, I, I left after a year and I decided to, you know, to completely stay away from, from that. Actually, I gave up music for, for a, a few years. Oh, wow. I became a yoga teacher. A yoga teacher? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did that eventually help with your dexterity in your hands? I don't Flexibility? Know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought that, I thought that by, you know, I got. It. I was doing. I was in exploring that more and more, and I went. You know, uh, was was in India then studying yoga. But and I thought, well, let's go to the source. You know, because mm -hmm. what I saw of music was it's just a bunch of professionals, you know, doing their jobs. And I was like, yeah, but where are these? Like, you know, where are the crazy sages in the in the caves? You know. So I thought, well, maybe just leave music and go and find the crazy sages in the caves. You know. <laughs> but then I discovered that yoga was pretty similar. <laughs> And it was also kind of a professionalized thing, and most of the people I saw were doing their job, and they were, you know, yeah. So, yeah. but I mean, you can't escape, uh, you know, what you what you do. I think to a degree, and so at some point, for a while, I felt very liberated, not being a musician. I thought, God, why would I ever want to do that again? And why would anyone want to do that? It seems so egocentric, and you know, gosh, it's such a relief. And but slowly, I realized that you know that was the, still the, my thing. The concept of the musician, the musician sage is. I'm not quite sure that I, I follow you there. So, so in other words, well, music as yeah. a music as a transcendent discipline. You know, uh -huh. Music is something which takes people, listeners, or the player somewhere new. You know, uh, okay. You know, he, some, okay. 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 So, so, so not not music as a I've got a job and I teach these amount of people and I play on the weekends at this right. thing and I punch in my code and I punch out. Right. Yeah. But, but music as well the original reason that we get into it because something that tran transcends yeah. your being or your exactly. uh, existence and moves you. And I was, I was really looking for my entire university time and postgraduate for that inspiring teacher who was going to guide me on that path. And I never found that. Uh, you know, I studied with different people. I traveled around the world and tried to find within the classical world, but I didn't ever find, mm. even listening, I never found 
you know, classic guitarist that, you know, that you could just be like, this is it. I'm going to go find this guy, hunt him down, knock on his door, stand yeah. out there in the snow Actually, until yeah, he lets yeah, me yeah. in. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And so in some ways looking for like another Michael, because Michael in some ways was that to you in high school? Or? Yeah, I yeah, suppose okay. so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, looking for someone who can take you to the next level because, you know, the, the people who, who I did look up to then, you know, that you know, you, you eventually transcended that mm-hmm. and you saw you saw through things and you, you, you know, or they disappointed you and realized, you know, like, no, you know, cause I was really like music, you know, and <laughs> even Michael, I mean, he once said to me, you know, the world doesn't need rocket scientists. It needs people who know how to fix VCRs. And I wasn't prepared to, to, to accept that, you know, because he'd been, so his, his analogy being, you don't need to be Segovia. You need exactly. to be a working musician who's bringing music to the exactly. masses or something like that. Okay. And you know, it's, I suppose what he said could apply in any context, but very much it applied in the South African context because there really was no outlet for someone like him. Mm. You know, there really was no outlet for a, a good classic guitarist. Okay. He, he arrived back from the from from studying overseas. He won a competition. He he had a marvelous guitar. He was a great player, and he played with the orchestra. And, you know, but then that's it. Yeah, because you're going to do it once. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then you have to see, okay, I'm going to make a living. And so he became a teacher at a school, and and then he, started, you know, he made a very good living as a gig musician. And he realized this is the job. You know, he accepted that. You know, if he wants to have a family and make a living, this is what he's going to have to do. And I didn't accept that. Yes. Okay, you know? I got you. I was really like, no ways. And and we we had a conflict around that. I think you know. Um, well, what about hearing music? Because you mentioned you know, so 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 you sort of a lack of a mentor and a great teacher, but also you you weren't hearing music that was bringing you to that place. In other words, you were going to performances and it was kind of lackluster. Well, I wasn't going to performances because it's very rare to see performances. Uh, no, not lackluster. There were definitely people that inspired me. Uh, you know, I, when I went to, I used to go to guitar festivals uh, as, as often as I could because that was where I learned yeah. during undergraduate. So yeah. I studied, I did a master class with Adia Sad, and they were a huge inspiration. Yeah. You know, like just amazing and Jonathan Leafwood who's very interesting yeah uh, cool yeah. this is in South Africa they came to South Africa no, 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 or you no. went to wherever no, no nobody comes to South Africa <laughs> no I mean if you're if you're studying guitar in South Africa the likelihood is you've never seen a guitarist play mm. you know that that was half the problem um, okay. no this is going to England uh, to they had a they had a guitar festival Chichester which was a great guitar festival I went to a few times cool. and and yeah so okay but you know, finding finding that was, you know, it, it, it turned out that I wasn't so interested in the classical guitar scene. I think that was the that it took me twenty years to realize. <laughs> and, and when you say classical guitar scene, you mean the international guitars? Yeah, the, the international guitar, guitar scene okay. and yeah. the repertoire and what the what the instrument does. It wasn't exactly my thing, and I, I tried to make it my thing, and I tried to I tried to love it, but you know, I, I wanted to, to you know, I had other kind of interests in music that weren't there. Yeah, know, okay. The sort of Segovia tradition or the avant-garde music that, you know, certain people play, you know. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't for you. Okay, so so <clears throat> all of that predates you going to India and getting into yoga. Yes, and, and, and getting okay. another job. So I did have a day job as a yoga teacher okay. for a while. And, a yoga teacher. And then I started, so, so the way I got back into music um, was kind of as part of the, you know, the, the process of of yoga and working with yourself in, in different ways. And one of them was, okay, I'm a guitarist. Well, how am I going to do this? Where does this fit in? So I so I set up a year of house concerts in my house. Nice. The last Sunday of every month, um, without fail, I had to play a house concert. And that was an incredible process because I'd literally put my guitars in the pantry in the kitchen, you know, and I was just 
I don't want to see you guys again. Stay mm. away. And I, I just got, I think that was around, yeah, around the time when I got my current guitar. This is Herman Hauser guitar. Uh, well, maybe that might have been, I can't remember now. But anyway, I started doing these house concerts. And so every Sunday, I, every Sunday of once a month, I had to present a concert. I had a little mailing list that I created from that. And so just learning from your gigging days. Right? Yeah. Did you and put up any posters? No, I didn't put up posters. It was just invites on mail. And okay. I, I had 30 people at every concert for a year, and they weren't the same people. Cool. It was interesting. And, and what that allowed me to do was it allowed me to, for one month, every month, I had that to think about. Mm -hmm. And I explored a different way of performing or a different concept of how I was using performing every time. So I did, I did all sorts of things. I mean, it was, I was exploring a lot with the, pos the position of playing because I, I had played eight string guitar and studied, uh, not yet, maybe around about the time studying with Paul Galbraith, but being influenced by him, I played the eight string guitar. Uh, just before this, I had released an album. Um, I had released two albums. So I missed out actually that at around the time of doing my, you know, post-grad, I, I had you know, done a whole record label thing with a friend and released oh. my two first albums okay, and done that. And there'd been a whole sort of thing around that. And that was after, so sorry, yeah, that's right. So it was after that that I actually gave up. Um, oh, okay. Because, Release two albums, then go to India, come back. Yeah, exactly. Second wave. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The people come in. Uh, we had all these ideas, you know, we created this kind of like <clears throat> amazing label. We did beautiful packaging. There was a whole stable of wonderful local artists. And of course it went nowhere, nowhere, you know, and what year was this? Um, 2001. Um, so we released the first album in 2001, which was called Sachtefle, and that was, I was playing viola, it was string quartet with uh, trumpet and accordion, and we were re-exploring the music of the Western Cape. Um, mm. So it was kind of this, and that was an immensely creative and inspiring time. Is and the album still available? So yeah, yeah it. it's on my website, yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't, it's not on Spotify that yet, because I, it's another story, I'm trying to, I want to remaster it from, I found the original tapes recently, so. Cool, yeah. Uh, and then I made a solo guitar album, Blom Dorrance. But, you know, there was no way that you could then make an album and get an agent and start touring with it. So mm -hmm. I did the album. It went out. It got a, got a bit of nice press. Uh, and then... Yeah, did you do the press yourself? Or? Yeah, it's had some help. But when I say nice press, you know, five reviews in, in South African papers and that was that. So it, it wasn't, you know, and that's when I started questioning this whole thing about, yeah, okay, yeah. do I really want to be doing this? And I got... I started family as well, and that's always oh, a bit distracting. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> a bit distracting. So yes, I, least, yes. Yeah, and I got more sort of interested in like, how do you want to live? How do I want to bring up children? Uh, all that than like, how am I going to promote yeah. this this or career? How are you going to bring music into your children's lives? Is another question, right? Maybe. Well, that was a very good thing because that actually really connected the dots for me musically when I started, you know, sitting around playing uh, children's songs on the guitar. Mm. That kind of connected ear and, and, and fingers in a way that my university education hadn't. Mm. You know, but that's another cool. story. Yeah. So, so that, was, that was it, it was stopping for a while and, um, and then getting back into it through these weekly, these weekly concerts and, and exploring different ways to present the music. And that got me playing again because I had to create my own industry because I, I now I knew that that, that that I was either going to be playing weddings or I was going to be teaching. Yeah. And, a, yeah. A quick question about the, the CDs. What, what would have been at that time for you, what would have been enough uh, reviews or even sales to have convinced you to 
just continue that route. Just just keep making CDs and putting them out and maybe or, or you know CDs plus tours. I mean, you know, and I ask this. I know that it can be mm. humiliating, no. or it can be for me. Uh, you know, making an, three albums um, after college with my local band here, yeah. like rock band, um, and we would press a hundred, one mm. hundred CDs, mm. and that was. You know, if we sold all 100, that was... I mean, obviously, we weren't trying to make a living with it. Yeah. But, you yeah, know... Yeah, we pressed uh, 500 of each of those albums. Okay. And, well, we had stock for a good many years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Look, it's not... I think it wasn't about, you know, how many reviews or things. It's, it's, it's what do you do with it. Yeah. You know, because the thing is, to sell an album, it's the same now. You have to have a gig. And where do you play gigs? Well, and this is the question that I answered slowly. In your As house. the years went, yeah. um, starting in my house, nice. then expanding to other people's houses, and then expanding to getting venues that I could afford to, to rent, mm-hmm. and doing the publicity through my mailing list, and you know, and slowly building. So it got to the point where I was playing around about 25 to 30 concerts a year in the Western Cape. I wasn't traveling because of children, mm-hmm. um, but I was playing, I was playing a lot of small concerts to yeah. 80 or 100 people. And twice it's, a month, eighty people per concert. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a lot. Something, something like that. Maybe they were thirty. Sometimes, I mean, <clears throat> uh, yeah. But and that's what I started doing. And 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 I started, uh, and I had to relook at the how you release albums thing because the record label that we started was you know all beautifully done and you know designers and we had a local gallery and stuff. So so I wanted to sell those albums. So I started making copies on my computer you know, with the permission of, of the record label. And and I, and I started selling them with the white, remember the white label uh, CDs, burnt CDs? They were just, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I would write, um, I would write the name of the album in in, uh, in ink, mm-hmm. you know? And oh, I just had, write it with a marker on top? Yeah, with a marker on top. And I had a little stamp, like those, you know? Yeah. I had a stamp with Derek Gripper on it. So I'd stamp it blue and I'd write and I'd put it in a clear plastic and I sold those those for you know the equivalent to let's call it ten dollars. It was a hundred rand um, then. And it's interesting to me that the price hasn't changed very much, even though I'm doing them much more professionally now. And we're how many twenty years later? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this, well, this, this sort of inflation yeah. on, on physical has, has. So, so the margins on those ten dollar CDs that you were selling, and this is just in a in a plastic sleeve as opposed to a jewel case. Yeah, no, it was just a clear plastic. There was no, this was nothing. That's how I started. But yeah. and then I started making new new ones, uh, you know, like a live live one or this. So I started having too many, and then they all looked too similar. Mm. So I I've I eventually got uh, these cardboard uh, sleeves I would buy in bulk, and then I'd stamp them with. And then I got a whole lot of stamps for each album. So eventually I had this whole tray and each album had its stamps with the, one stamp for the track listing, one stamp for the album name. So, and I'd literally go before every concert and I'd stamp out a whole lot of records. That's awesome. Yeah. Burn That's... them on my CD, on my, on my computer, put them in and sell them for a hundred bucks in those days. Well, I mean, South African. So it's like DIY for classical guitar. I mean, this is like totally. a whole movement, right? Of indie rock in the States yeah. where people are making their own stuff, making their own shirts, make, you're, you're stamping your CD cases and working your tail yeah. off. It was great. Uh, it was great. And you put the money in your well, pocket afterwards. You didn't have to like save up well, and, you know, and, and, and then I started needing to differentiate them. So I made ID photographs. The, the, um, the designs were, yeah, I would go and have them printed at the ID Photoshop, hmm. but with, with a design and I would stick those on with 
with uh, decoupage or decoupage. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I had this whole thing and, and that was great. And it was only really when I stopped making money from CDs was when I started printing them properly again <laughs> later on. <laughs> so, so what were, I mean, so the, the sleeve and the CD and the marker and the stamp, that's costing you less than a dollar to make. Yes. I mean, it wasn't even an amount that I, that I even wrote down even because consider, you just, okay. you just, you know, you went around to that packing stop and I'd get like a hundred of these okay. things and the stamps cost me whatever to have made. And I still have so, the whole box of all the stamps, you know. Okay, because I'm, from a business world, we're going to call that a 90% margin. Totally. Well, it became, uh, yeah. More, yeah. Maybe more, yeah. Exactly. And then, and then eventually you're, you're making enough of those and then you're decoupaging and you're, you're getting, selling enough CDs basically that you, it makes sense for you to go back to some sort of machine production and at that point it becomes expensive again. No, well, the because, machine production, we had a, in our, in our um, you know, my wife at the time and I had... Uh, a little bit of money came that way and so we invested and we thought uh, let's invest in a, and I started a label called New Cape Records okay. and the yes. idea was to because by that time I had about nine albums and and uh, so I was making a new one and I was making one for a, a South African uh, a bow player called Madusini and so uh, you know and, and the cost of printing was too expensive so I realized Let's do all of them. So I spent two weeks designing the covers and liner notes and everything for nine albums and had nine albums pressed, 500 each. So I made a huge outlet. Um, and I, I mean, I had that, some of that stock I still have to this day, but, you know, it's, it's been going for, mm. uh, you know, 10 years, I think. And so we, we made an investment doing that. And, you know, and that, so... Uh, yeah, you never really made that money back, you know that 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 huge investment, and I I would never recommend I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, mm. you know, especially not now. I mean, now it's completely changed. I mean, then you know people still listen to CDs, but yeah, yeah, uh, it's and okay. so so once so that kind of that made me think, okay, this doesn't work, and you know, and so when I got to, I made an album called The Sound of Water, which I think was my eleventh album, and I was really happy with this album. You know, it was a real change in direction in every way. And sorry to interrupt, but it, mm -hmm. this is in the timeline of the year of uh, monthly concerts at your house, 11th album oh, is after? This, or? this is like, uh, yeah, this is like six, seven years later. Okay. So I've been doing well, this, I'm playing the concerts. I've, I've, you know, it's, it's developed a little bit. I'm playing at maybe local festivals now. I'm doing concerts. I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm surviving, but really, you know, not, not easily. Not, right. You're and we're living on a farm, so, you know, homeschooling the children, so we're not paying anything for anything, you know. Okay. It was really like subsistence. Subsistence living, yeah. okay. And, yeah, and just to just try to get the steps in my head right or, or, or chronologically. Yes, I'm but, still also trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so the monthly, month, when you're doing the monthly shows at your house, mm -hmm. did you charge money for people to come in or was it just... Hey, Donation. No, so mm. X number, X dollars suggested donation. No suggestion. I just, just had a box. Just put, okay. And they got a meal. And they got, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. they got a meal and they donation and and that money would pay for, I always had to pay the school fees on the day after. So that would always pay for my, my youngest son's school fees. Nice, month. okay, okay. Um, that was exactly how much money, I don't know how much it was, but that's how much money that made every right. month. And you, had, and you had two CDs that you would sell to people at that time. A bunch of CDs. A bunch of uh, CDs, yeah, maybe. Four, but different ones, some live things. And, okay. Yeah. 
Okay. And so at the end of that year, you're thinking, okay, I can get 30 people a month for 12 months. Maybe I can afford to rent out this hall and see if I can get 60 people to come. Or no, well, I, I couldn't afford anything. Um, <laughs> you know, anything that I made went back into family. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I just, I just found ways to do different things. I, I never had money to invest in anything. In, well, so it was, it well, was so what, what was the jump from the, the from, from your house to the first let's call it um, outside performance. Yeah, I was just asking people, so who wants to host a house concert? Oh, so more house yeah. concerts, okay. Yeah, and who then, wants to host a house concert or finding a hall that I could use, um, you know, I mean, and those were, it, was, it wasn't great, you know, you'd be playing a concert, you know, and you'd be looking at the audience and knowing that you weren't going to be able to pay your rent, you know, <laughs> as you were playing or, or getting home after a great concert and everyone going, that was amazing and we're so moved and we said touched and you get home and you look at the figures and you just realize you're screwed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, it was like that, you know, it wasn't, okay. uh, it wasn't really fun, but it, it was largely because, you know, there were, ex, there were extra musical factors, which was that, you know, I was homeschooling by then four children and I, I, I wasn't able to travel. I was living really out, you know, in the sticks. Um, so I, I wasn't going beyond, you know, a very small area. Mm-hmm. So there were personal choices there that made it definitely, you know, more difficult than it maybe needed to be, uh, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so 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 you're able to do the, for where are we now? We're, we're occasionally playing 25 to 30 concerts a year now in mm-hmm. the Cape, West Cape Town area. Um, and something, what, what's the next shift? What's the next sea change? Well, the, ne- the, next, the next shift is really when I released this, this ninth album, The Sound of Water. Mm. Uh, I was really excited about this album, and I actually got someone to help a bit with publicity. And I did a launch in a normal way that I would with, with a venue of somebody who, you know, would work on a door split. And it was really a flop. I didn't get a lot of people, and... I didn't sell many of the, of the records, and I put a huge amount of investment into that. And, you know, I printed it beautifully. It was a cover by an artist, William Kentridge, who's mm. you know, a legend. And <clears throat> so I, uh, I made a decision. I decided, right, that's it. I am not going to put money into records and recording my own money anymore. You know, I'm not going to put out like huge amounts of money that that I then. I'm living off the money that comes back in because I need it and you're never putting the money back. So you just have this debt forever. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. They think if I just throw everything at this record, you know, and they spend much more, you know, bands and people, you yeah, know, yeah. My, my records would take like, you know, six hours to make, you know, so it's <laughs> <laughs> a completely different thing. So, yeah, I, so I made so this decision yeah. and what, what, what was really interesting, what happened is that I had started transcribing the choro music that I'm now doing a lot of, this West African 21 string harp. Yeah. And a lot of people said to me, when are you going to record this music? And I said, and I put it out to my mailing list, I said, look, there's been a lot of people, you know, uh, wanting me to record this music. This is how much it's going to cost. This is my bank account. Go wild. <laughs> you know, and... And I got enough for half of the studio fee. And we're talking like uh, $500. Okay. You know, that, was, that was kind of was, how much it was going to cost. It was me. like a GoFundMe or a crowdfunding. Effort. Well, it was a, this is my bank account. You know, It was like yeah. a little bit before. Before that actually platform. They just things. sent you money without like some sort of website tracking. Yeah, it was okay. yeah exactly. Because it was 2009, 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. They, they might have started, but I don't think they were available in South Africa. I mean, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't yeah, use yeah. these platforms in South Africa still. So I went to the studio and <clears> I said to the guy, look, I've got half the money. And he was pretty strict on those, on those 
things. So we, we made the record and then he yeah. said, good, I'm going to need the other half, you know, within a week or whatever. So I put out another mail and I said, hey guys, made the record, great, still the other half, this is my bank account. And I think there was maybe one or two people who actually then covered that for me, a friend, oh, wow. friend of mine from school or somebody, I, I can't remember exactly how it worked. And, and then, of course, now I was, so now I had a recording and I had a cover that I'd, I'd found. Um, so I put it up on Bandcamp. And this was the golden age of downloads that time. You know, it was really an incredible time to be a, a, an indie musician. <laughs> uh, I put it up on Bandcamp and I just read a book called... It was a book about like... Um, it was a pre-Amanda Palmer Art of Asking type thing. Oh, yeah. in the music in the Digital Age, I think it was called or something. Okay. I wish I could remember. But anyway, his idea was give your music away, get people listening to it. This piracy thing is a thing from the record labels. It's not a thing from the musicians. Mm. If, you know, everyone's worried about piracy, but if you've got somebody with a warehouse making 10,000 copies of your album, you're you too, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, yep. So I put it up on Bandcamp and for any price, even nothing. And so you had to, you could put in it. And within six weeks, I had enough money to print a really good edition of 500 CDs. Nice. Um, in the way that I was doing it, which was slightly more expensive than usual. I was doing yeah. life printing and blah, blah, blah. So it self-funded itself. Um, and So if, if, I, if, you, if you don't mind my asking, so uh, the, the, you, you put it up on Bandcamp and people are paying whatever they want per, mm-hmm. per disc. You got enough to pay people back who had funded it or had no. they, they just thought of it as donation? No, no, that was a donation. Okay, they weren't so going to that money again. Thanks. Okay, so that money's gone. People are downloading on Bandcamp and, and you're using the money you get on Bandcamp to fund the next uh, press or release. Of well, I'm probably using it to eat. Eat and make another release. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the re- I, mean, I got enough money to, to, um, to press in theory um, in, in reality, we needed that money because, you know, we were yeah. like living from you know, yeah, moment yeah. to moment. Uh, so in order to press, uh, another friend of mine said, you've got to press and, and we entered into a kind of arrangement. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of, you know, on, on the side. But the main thing is that the pay what you want model allowed me to accumulate enough money to press. The, the figures of that were very interesting over about a, a, a year or two year period um, 70% of people took it for free mm. and 30% of people paid on average $10 an hour. Okay. So that's amazing because yeah. it outsold anything that I had on Bandcamp and anything that I'd ever done by a hundred times. Uh, obviously, you know, it's the thing that it was, a, it was a... In terms of units or in terms of dollars or both? Both, in every way. I mean, it's so, really so many more people bought it slash downloaded it. Yeah, and huge. I mean, the numbers were like massively different. I, I can't remember the now, but huge. I mean, there was just no like comparison. 10, 10 grand downloads, maybe. Gone. I mean, it just, yeah, like before it had been like, you know, trickling away. And yeah. people here and there. Of course, that's also to do with the music. It was much more accessible. It was my kind of breakthrough yeah. recording. Well, it's the first thing that I heard about you when I heard of Derek Gripper. Exactly. Core music, yeah. Yeah, so that's, 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 that's definitely... <clears throat> You know, they, the two things happened at the, at the right at the same time. You know, if, if I'd had it on streaming at the time, I wouldn't have seen anything. You know, <laughs> because you know now my audience is way bigger, like you know many 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 times bigger. 
and I'm not earning that kind of money in, yeah. in the digital realm. Yeah. Um, so I, that, I want, that's one of the last things I want to talk about. And I want to be yeah. cognizant of your, of your time because it's already 11 o'clock. So yeah, we good. Uh, okay. All right. So, well, so, so Bandcamp works out. Um, you've, you've got money to make another press of the, of the core music. Um, what year is this? This is 2009, 2010? Yeah, 2012. 2012. 11, 12. 11, 12. Uh, yeah. And so... I was really excited about this, this model. Yeah. It was amazing. You know, it was amazing that you could let the music advertise itself because yeah. those 70 people listening to it is what would be considered advertising, 70% of people. Yep, getting you it know, for free. I mean, but, imagine, but, yeah, imagine. Possibly coming to a show. If you, did you get to tour more after that? Or did you get to leave Western Cape Town? Yeah, I had a few breakthroughs then. I mean, the big breakthrough was John Williams hearing the, the record. Oh, I did not know about that story. Tell me that. Story. Yeah, so John, John heard, I, I, you know, a friend of mine said, to, a friend of mine in England uh, said to me, oh, you should send it to John. He loves African music. So I thought, okay, cool. I got his manager's uh, thing, emailed them. They said, send it to this address. And I sent it off and never thought about it again. And uh, at the time, I still, you know, didn't have many gigs. I had made that decision alongside you know, that no money into records, I'd also decided I'm not promoting any more help. I mean, it shows I'm not spending, you know, hours and mm. hours on the computer writing to classical guitar societies in South Africa or classical societies in South Africa trying to get gigs or trying to organize. I'm finished, you know. That's like, no more. I've had enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so I'm driving, I'm, I'm driving along the road. Uh, uh, you know, we lived right out on the, the point of the Cape Peninsula, um, Really, like no cell phone reception, no internet, nothing. You know, really middle of nowhere. And in order to check my mail, I had to use one of those uh, dongle things. You know, and I had to drive in the car with the computer open on the on the on the on the seat until I found signal. And when you got signal, you pulled over quickly. You know, and it kept moving, so you'd have to reverse a bit and go forward. And as I was doing this, I looked to the side, and this mail pops up on my laptop saying, uh, John Williams is inviting you to play at Shakespeare's Globe. Wow. <laughs> so that was, that, was a, that was a huge breakthrough. And at the same time, um, just before that, I'd come to the U.S. for the first time because a guy called David Spellman, who does the uh, New York Guitar Festival and El Nora Guitar right, Festival, right. he'd come, he'd got interested in my music prior to the, the chorus stuff. He, he had all my, my nine previous albums in, in different ways. And he invited me to come to the US. So I'd just been to Elnora and then I get this invite uh, to come and play with John and it was a great gig. I mean, it, it was amazing. Yeah, let's tell me about that gig. So he had a gig at the Globe and he wanted you to open or what? So the Globe Theatre had just opened up this new, uh, very uh, intimate 400-seater, beautiful period wooden uh, auditorium mm. connected to the other globe and they started a music series and mm. John everyone was curated by different musicians so there was I think Jordi Sabal did one Anushka Shankar did one uh, John Williams did one and I think you know he got five nights or something mm. and he was just when he got my record and he put it on his CD player he'd just compiled the list and was about to send it through and mm. he deleted somebody off the list okay. wow. and put me on it and wow. then the Globe contacted me. So you got one full night at the Globe? or So then that happened in a strange way because um, we were going to play, um, you know, a combined show, but the Globe wanted to bring in a Cora player um, that, that they had a connection with so that people could see what is actually a Cora as mm. well. And that was going to be great for me too because I'd also never seen a Cora. <laughs> <laughs> And so we ended up, John decided that 
cool, have the Cora player, but give Derek his own night with the Cora player uh-huh. at, at the Globe. And then we'll do our show, him and me. And, oh, so um, you got to play two nights. So I got to play two nights wow. with a crazy door deal. It was a ridiculous amount of, of money that I had never seen in my life before for a gig and probably never will again. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was an amazing change. And that allowed me to do a longer tour. I, on the back of having done El Nora, I contacted a few agents in the U.S. and... Um, I got now you my can first, say I've played with John Williams. And, exactly. Yeah. So I got my first US agent and she booked a few shows. I can't even remember where. I think I did new, I did something small in New York, maybe a drum. And, but anyway, I was on the road for six weeks and it was you know, a financially viable experience <laughs> and got, got the things going in the sense of having an, an agent that could you know, start to book gigs and a, and a and obviously an actual physical place that you could have gigs because that doesn't, I mean, to this day, I don't have an agent in South Africa and I don't have a touring schedule in South Africa. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just not a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that, that was the, the, the real change. Cool. And yeah. that I'd say is the point where I kind of exit the interesting part of the music industry in a way for, for anybody else, you know, now it's just like, I've got an agent, he finds some work. I don't know how he does it. Um, I put, I put albums out on, on, on digital platforms and, you know, print them myself and I sell them at the gigs that my agent gets me. Okay. And so you, so you're still, you're independent in terms of label. Yes. You're I, making I, your own I, I see no reason to be in a label unless you're part of a kind of iconic story. You know, if you, yeah. like there are a few labels like ECM and non such who are still, you know, they yeah. have this, that, you know, you have an association with that. To be with some kind of independent label, no matter how good they are, um, it depends on their publicist. If they've got a good, yeah. good publicist, that's great. So, would you put Naxos in the you know story? Not category? for me. No. I, mean, I don't think it's really kind of. I mean, hey, I, I don't know what exactly what they do, but I don't think that's really. Yeah. They don't really do my thing. Um, okay. But I, I mean, I find it's you know in this day and age to give away. I mean, the great thing is I have you know twelve, thirteen albums that I own, so I own the publishing rights too, and I will always own them. And so, even though digital rights have diminished so much, mm-hmm. it's still mine. You know, I don't have yeah. to give fifty percent of it to a record yeah. label. You know, and so how many of those? If we can shift to the Spotify mm-hmm. thing, because that's something that I you know, heard and read that the terms are opaque and nobody that I read about anyway will either will or can say how much they make per stream. Mm. It seems like nobody understands it. it I think it's no, it's, it's no point, not, not, not eight cents per stream, I think. Isn't that the official? Eight, eight cents per stream? Not point, not, not oh, zero point zero 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 eight. I think is the amount, but I, I stand corrected. We should, we should double check. There's too many zeros. It's a lot of zeros. Yeah, that's a lot of zeros. Um, you know, there's all these. I mean, there's you know, everyone's quoting all these things of like you need to have a million streams a month to earn minimum wage in the U.S. Of like fifteen hundred dollars or something. I, I don't know yeah. how much that's changed. Or uh, I can tell you, for me, you know, I I have twelve thousand um, monthly listeners. Yep. Um, which is fine amount. It's not a bad amount. I mean, you know, that compared to someone like Tumani Gabate, who's at half a million. Yeah. Um, so he's a you know incredibly established you know artist, and you know, and of course the the Biebers are up in the many millions. <laughs> right. We're not. Yeah. We're not really on that. Yeah. That's another story. Yeah. And they, you know. So but, but are all twelve of your CDs on Spotify now? Or? No. No. Okay. No. I haven't actually put my back catalog there. So everything from the Sound of Water is, is forward. On. Yeah. Okay. Forward. Um, it's not a lot of forward. So, so that includes the Cora CD, obviously. Yeah. And the one thing that's actually the one CD 
that's had the most play is actually the Globe CD that, that the Globe released. Oh. So that tells me that obviously they've had a marketing thing behind them and that's significantly more than my independently released stuff. So just sticking things onto Spotify and leaving them, which is essentially what I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I released Libraries on Fire, I did have somebody working with me on the publicity, um, kind of as a you know, passion project. Um, from the UK, and that got that a lot of movement. It won a Songlines Award, and it's you know it got a lot of reviews and, and things and things. But the difference between that and something which has actually been more quiet, the Globe, it's a combination record with that core player, um, is huge. You know the, the listening, and you know obviously that's due to some kind of you know publicity that they've been able to do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that it's 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 we're back in the same old territory. You know where in order to get things heard, you have to invest and you have to have publicity in that. And what was so exciting about the Give It Away for Free model is that people could just listen to it and it meant something if yeah. they liked it. Whereas now people can still just listen to it, but it doesn't mean anything. You know? mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, the Bandcamp thing, I mean, it reminds me of uh, SoundCloud today, right? So you have SoundCloud composers who have over a million listeners mm. and they're, I don't think they're making any money. I mean, no. Yeah. So, no. Uh, but but I guess yeah. I guess I'm making eighty dollars a month on Spotify. On Spotify mm. with a hundred and for, with twelve k monthly listeners, eighty dollars a month. I think it's about eighty dollars. I mean, again, I stand corrected. I haven't looked, but it's it's in that region. Yeah. Um, something like that, and then maybe another forty dollars from Apple streaming, and prob and then two or three times both of those combined in downloads. And that's just from Apple, or yeah, from iTunes and, and, and minuscule, minuscule amounts with all the other ones, Google Play and all that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the downloads are still dwarfing any streaming royalties by a very long shot. Um, and that's going away by 2019. Apple is saying and it's going away <clears throat> and, it's, and it's lessening. And then if you add the Bandcamp downloads to that, it's again probably more. So I'm, I'm definitely making way more. Is, um, is Bandcamp still alive? The Bandcamp's still alive. I'm, I, I, I actually haven't checked the kind of streaming and uh, and download figures. Uh, they are very intermittent downloads. I mean, it used to be daily. I was having kaching ten dollars. You know, <laughs> it was amazing. You know, it was inc- you know incredible. Imagine you just you know you're making no money. You've got an album out and you're making thirty dollars a day. Mm-hmm. You know, in downloads, it's in- great. incredible. Yeah, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, Every time you open your mail, you know, someone's downloading an album. And 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 the wonderful thing is, they were going like, you go ka-ching, three dollars, ka-ching, twelve dollars, ka-ching, twenty dollars. <laughs> so it was all the time changing. It was so it was, and it was really an interesting and kind of exciting. No, no I don't even look. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm just like whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but the, but the physical, I'm using Bandcamp for physical orders. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm still selling online. Uh, I have to post. So I don't know if you saw it. There was an article in, um, I think it might have been Quartz, that said that the RIAA is said that 2017 physical sales outpaced um, streaming and downloaded music for the first time since 2011. Hmm. Um, and they say it's largely because of vinyl sales. Mm. Is that something that's within like the realm of something that you could do? Could you create something in vinyl? Would you want I have. to? You have. I have. Yeah. I've got two records in vinyl. Um, <clears throat> I, I so the first uh, um, well one was like an art project that I did in Germany so that doesn't count um, but uh, I released One Night on Earth so that first Cora album I was approached by a label called Matsuli Music who re-release uh, out of print African things and I was their first kind of non-re-release you know like a project and 
So amazingly, they took on this project and they did a 500 run and got them out there. So, you know, I think it took a year or two and that 500, you know, went. And I actually printed then independently through them my own 500. And that wasn't a great uh, investment. It's not something that I would run to do again because it took a long time to pay off. Um, really expensive and I'm you know to tour with vinyl is, as a single person is really hell I mean you can take 20 yeah, yeah as opposed to a few hundred CDs and I actually surprisingly enough wasn't I'm not selling a lot of vinyl at gigs I don't know you know if that's my you know my audience mm. I, 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 the audience is at these cups I don't know but I mean I, I, CDs will outsell vinyl 20 to 1 at any gig yeah you know and I mean, we first printed them for a UK tour. I was doing 14 dates in the UK, and I think I probably sold 14 records. Yeah, I've had the same. I've never seen vinyl for sale at a classical guitar show that I've seen, so I, I don't... I think the I, collectors are getting them from their sources. I don't think people yeah. are going to gigs and buying records right, that much. Right. I mean, a little bit, but not enough to warrant taking them on tour. Or the people who buy records might not be the people who listen to music live. Exactly, yeah. Or, well, you you know, they order it through the people that they... So, yeah. so they, they definitely moved when Matsuli was doing it because they... You know, but now that I'm not distributing very much then it's, you know, they don't, they're sitting more. I mean, I've only got a few left. So, you know, there's there's probably 800, it's probably sold eight or 900 vinyls by now, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, if I had the capital and I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to print Libraries on Fire, you know, the, the one that came after that because, you know, obviously you'd be, you'd be selling to the people who, you know, have the previous one. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if you've got the money to invest, and it's great. And for me, it's a little bit more complex because, you know, we can't, I can't print in South Africa. So I end up with them in the UK. And to get them home is impossible. Mm-hmm. You know? So I can bring like 20 home at a time, <laughs> you know, and then kind of mission to all the vinyl stores in, in South Africa, you know, which I'm not going to do. Um, but people do do this and I know that for instance Guy Buttery uh, who's a steel string guitarist in South Africa he's he's an amazing you know he's a much better kind of businessman in that sense of how he makes how he makes things happen than than myself Um, and is that just a function of that he puts more time into it or is he what's what's he better at my whole philosophy is really like I just play and I see what happens. I don't really like. I, I, I you've done a lot of yeah. I mean, you've made CDs. You've you've got yeah. the stamp thing. You've you've you know exactly. You've done but a lot of work. But it's all it's yourself. all on a very like it's not on a, you know the stamp thing. It's not investing. I don't go like let's take you know let's take a ten thousand yeah, dollar yeah. and and do this you know or so he's okay, putting more money them, front, So yeah. let's 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 do a crowdfunding thing. I, I've much more just put things out and let them develop their own mm-hmm. things, and which has meant that things have slowly built and grown through the music itself and I, I don't know where the ceiling of that is my feeling is there is a ceiling um, you know I come to the US a lot I, I think there's a ceiling for how many people can actually find out about you until you start investing in publicity because the whole thing is pretty canned in the sense of mm-hmm. you know who, who hears you know who writes about things because you know you, you can come and you can do 50 shows here a year and never get a review unless you pay the publicist to do the review it seems I mean, that said, I just got a review to Savannah Music Festival, so that's nice. Cool. Savannah, <laughs> Georgia? Yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, well, so so the, the organic thing leads me to believe that you might not be a, a five- and ten-year uh, career plan type of a guy. Is that the case, or do you have like a, hey, you know, I've come this far, and in five no. years I want to be here? No. no. Okay. 
Uh, no, I, I'm just kind of going with it uh, mostly. I mean, I, I know I'm thinking more where I want to be musically and okay. and and. Uh, well, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Where do you want to be musically in in five years? Well, I mean, where I am now is that I can play mostly solo. I can play what I want, and I can only play for a living, um, which is already an incredible place for a South African solo classical guitarist to mm. me, you know, or any classical guitarist. Mm -hmm. um, so that's amazing, and I, I just really want to, you know, to develop that to the point where people know about it more. I mean, people come to concerts and they really love it because it's something different, and, you know, it's guitar used in a way um, that they haven't heard it used before, and there's a conversation in music that has not been had much, you know, like, you know, hearing a piece of Bach and a piece of Tumani Diabate interacting mm. in a single concert you know i think this is important for people you know to because we're I, we're in a i feel we're moving into the post-world music um era mm -hmm. you know where it's it's no longer interesting even though they're still trying to sell it as an interest point it's no longer interesting that you were born in some culture and that you're a mono you know a monoculture this and that you were the 500th generation of this thing or you part of this lineage or you you know that's really getting old now because we all know that we don't live in that world anymore you know like nobody who was born in the last 20 30 years is, has grown up in a kind of unbroken musical lineage that somehow takes us back to the past and gives the audience some access to some forgotten era mm. it's gone it's created <coughs> And there's a conversation, and this is already evident in the playing of Tumani Debate in 1987. Mm -hmm. It's already in, ev evident in the playing of Ali Farkuture, you know, this whole question of was Ali influenced by the blues or did the blues, is, is Ali the beginning of the blues? Mm -hmm. And it's both, you know. And so, but, it, you know, it was this kind of essentialist thing was, was sold for a long time, authenticity mm -hmm. and all that. And I'm, I'm really interested in how, in, in, you know, alive and interesting the real conversation that's been going on for hundreds of years, thousands of years, how we can start to have that actually properly, you know. You're, you're like, talking about the, the, the interplay between cultures or between yeah. different types of between individuals and individuals. Yeah, I mean, I'm more interested in Tumani Diabate, the chorus player, than I am in Malian music. Okay. I don't really care much about Malian music as a mm -hmm. genre. I'm interested in individuals in, in Mali as much as I'm interested in individuals in Brazil or, you know, I, I'm not interested, I'm, you know, if someone comes along and says I'm a chora player, I'm not interested until I hear them play and I think they're amazing, mm -hmm. you know, and it's the same with, with any instrument. I mean, yeah, you, you, yeah. Don't, you don't walk around saying I like the piano. Right, well, you know, I do really. say I like the guitar, but yeah, I see yeah. your point. You know? <laughs> I mean, I like the guitar, yeah, it's very broad, yeah. you know, <clears throat> and one does, you know, and you might, you know, really, really into guitar and listen to all guitar music um, for sure. For me, it's more like I like certain musicians, and mm -hmm. so you know, if you went onto my you know music collection, it's not all guitarists. It's it, in fact, it's very few. Mm -hmm. It's it's different things. So I I see that I'd like to see that developing, and just have the ability to. I mean, if I can keep doing what I'm doing now, that's already um, kind of a career goal realized. If yeah. I can, because at the moment I'm in a position where I can spend my non-touring times exploring whatever it is I want to explore at the time. I can go down different rabbit holes. I can pull out, you know, uh, handwritten Bach manuscripts and, and think about how that would translate onto the guitar with the idea of the oral tradition from Mali in my head. Mm. And I can go down that for a while or I can explore comp composing more or I can explore improvisation. And then I can go on tour and put those things 
to use and see how they work on the stage, you know. And at the same time, sometimes collaborating with musicians that I, you know, have respect and looked up to for, for years, like Debashish Bhattacharya, the slide guitarist I toured here with last year, and John Williams. So so that's that's it's it's pretty much just allowing that organic thing to keep growing and see you know where it goes and hopefully that where it goes is not a kind of dead end mm-hmm. you know because there is a there's always a possibility that you you reach a dead end where you're like okay so you've got these gigs and you do them or you don't have any more <laughs> or there's no interest so can can you keep that conversation going can it become you know ever richer and I think for me uh, as a as a musician it's about you know can I move out of that thing of oh he's playing chord music on guitar isn't that interesting mm. which is fantastic I'm glad that people find that interesting but there's more going on and so it's as people discover that it's you know that that's not my line that it, oh, it's great he's, he's brought chord music to guitar you know which could be a great line for somebody you know yep. but that's not really me it's that's one aspect of me and and there's a lot of other conversations going and so I'm trying to I'm just all the time branching out into that <laughs> so you want to continue to grow with this thing, and it, yeah. So I, I hear what you're saying. It's it's, it's more than um, obviously more than you know, Derek Ripper, person who plays Cora on the guitar. Yeah. It's Derek Ripper who had nine albums before that and is exploring not necessarily other genres, but the, the way in which uh, his musical personality might interact with other musical personalities. Um, well, it's, or, it's it's I'm trying to learn how to play guitar, and I'm trying to learn how to in, interacting with the guitar. And the music that I love, and and myself, and my interaction. So there's that whole sort of constellation of things that you slowly start. You know, you leave things along the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that slowly become your your you know your catalog, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Of what you do, and and I am kind of still reinventing what it is that I do. I don't really know what I do. Like, am I a classical guitarist performing African music in the same way that you would classical music? That's interesting. Or am I developing slowly more as an improviser and trying to take the guitar into you know the realm of of that you know the Keith Jarrett solo concerts you know is you know when I was in my twenties that was an inspiration for me mm. could you do play guitar like that you know could you go to a solo guitar concert and watch someone doing what Keith does on the piano you know uh, etc. A favorite piece of yours that you'd want to highlight for the the good people listening to the podcast. Well, Libraries on Fire has a nice uh, has a nice. Uh, tune called Duga, which I quite like. Uh, okay. It's the opening track. Um, there's one on there called Salama, which is uh, very similar to Jarabi, which is on one night to Jarabi is a kind of favorite for, for everybody, I think. It's a really... Well, uh, what's the favorite for you? Well, I'm sure you have many favorites, but if we, talk, if we stick on Duga for a minute, can you tell hmm. me a little bit of backstory on Duga? Yeah, so Duga is... Um, so One Night on Earth was, was a lot of Tumani Diabate's music. And Timani is an innovator. He's, he's, you know, I wouldn't see him as a traditional musician, except that he comes from a tradition. But what he did is completely new. He changed the direction of Cora, like Bach changed the Baroque. You know, um, in Libraries on Fire, I wanted to present a slightly broader range of what the Cora is. You know, to to slowly, and it's only a beginning, to move away from this. I like the Cora. If I've heard Timani. To hey, okay, you like Cora? Who you know? Like what guitar do you like? Is it, you like Hendrix? You like Segovia? Mm. You know, or both. <laughs> so so there's um, so Duga is uh, by um, it's transcribed from a recording by a Cora player called Seku Paturu Koyate, 
and he is one of Tumani's influences and teachers. So early earlier generation recording mm -hmm. in the 70s. So it's it's a it's it's a very different uh, style of of playing um, cool. to Tumani's. And and I've yeah. taken it, you know, and also then in Libraries and Fire, I've also kind of improvised and 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 I'm I've stayed less close to the text, so to speak. Okay. So so Duga is transcribed by you, Derek Ripper. Mm. Yeah, um, all, the, all the pieces. Yeah. All the pieces are transcribed from Cora. Oh, mm. Okay, and then that particular piece is a is a Cora piece by Setu Bakura. Kuyate. Yeah. Set. Kuyate. All right. Kuyate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kuyate. All right. So uh, that'll be what we go out on. So Derek. Hey, Gripper, thank thanks, you very Dave. much uh, for coming by, sharing some insights, and uh, look forward to seeing you over the few, <laughs> a couple days. It was. <laughs> Great, thank you. Cheers. We are about to wrap things up here at the More Art Than Science podcast, but before we do, allow me to beseech you. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing so helps others find the show, which in turn helps the artists that I interview find more fans which in turn helps fill the world with more and better music. Do your bit!